Hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson, and this is The Nightlight. The show is on hiatus right now, so this is going to sound rather different from a regular episode. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome. I encourage you to check out the episodes on your podcast app or online at nightlightshow.com. I did want to tape another one just because I wanted to put my thoughts down somewhere for people who might be coming to an idea that I'm trying to spread about the future of journalism. It's been kicking around in my brain now for, gosh, about six years, maybe almost seven now, as a matter of fact, about how we find a 21st century way to do journalism that doesn't rely on kind of the old notions of objectivity, impartiality, neutrality, concepts that even some mainstream news organizations are beginning to pull away from in the old school way of thinking about them. You know, objectivity in terms of, you know, no bias, right down the middle, kind of voice from nowhere, completely impartial. And I've been thinking about it for a while, and I think I've got a better way forward. I call it clinical journalism. Some of you may have heard me talk about this in the past in my work, either as the host of 1A on NPR, or as an anchor for MSNBC or for NBC News. And now I think I've got it articulated clearly enough that it's ready to put out into the world and hopefully gain some traction. Now, this is not gospel. This is not dogma. I'm not trying to beat down anybody who does not do what I'm doing. That is not the point. Far from it. This is just an idea that I think can work for many journalists and news organizations who are trying to articulate a better way forward in today's media landscape. I welcome questions and comments and feedback and critiques and ideas and so on. Feel free to email me, joshua at nightlightshow.com. If you are reading this on the website or if you are listening to this on a podcast app or on YouTube, feel free to comment on this episode or just email me, joshua at nightlightshow.com. Let me give you some backstory in terms of how this idea came about. Before I was on this path, I always kind of knew I wanted to be in broadcasting, but I ended up in a summer program at Temple University in Philadelphia called the Minority Access to Research Careers Program, the MARC program. It was run out of the Temple University School of Medicine, summer program, so I would spend the summers in Philadelphia. I am from South Florida, so my mother, who worked in the program, would fly up with me and we would spend summers in Philly. I was certain that I loved broadcasting, but she encouraged me to give this program a try just to see what I thought of it. And I really liked it. I was in the program for six summers, three in Philadelphia, and then three at various universities in Canada, one in Montreal, one in Toronto, and one in Vancouver. The time there obviously did not prevent me from going into broadcasting, but it it did give me this respect for clinicians. I learned about science and about the hands-on work of both being in a lab and working in a hospital. I gained this respect for people who studied diseases, particularly those that affected them so personally. You know, like the cancer researcher who lost someone they love to breast cancer, or the AIDS researcher who lost a lot of friends at the advent of HIV. But I was amazed also that a lot of these people who did this work, even though they had deeply personal reasons, they did not do this work with a grim, joyless outlook. You know, they were whole human beings. And even though their work was very important to them, they still felt complete as people. 
So how is that possible? Well, they were using methods that worked to make progress on real problems. And I think something about seeing the work you do have an impact, seeing it make a dent, that's powerful. And it kind of frees you up from feeling so grim about the work that you're doing. It kind of, it may be work that means life or death, but you don't feel like you are dying every day that you're not succeeding. And I think that it appealed to me as a young man, not even realizing how much I liked an interdisciplinary approach to life. I've always been something of a polymath. I've been interested in a lot of different things, lots of different subjects. I've always loved the arts. Theater was my first love, which when I tell people that, they're like, oh, that explains everything. So it allowed me to kind of, as I got older, combine what I learned in the arts, the sciences, the humanities, and some good old common sense, which for me works better than any rigid approach. I always worry about rigidity. And there's a lot of very rigid philosophical thinking in journalism. But, you know, the the tree that won't bend in the wind will break in the storm. Rigid is risky. Rigid is risky. And I thought, how is it that this art form of journalism has gotten so rigid, especially in the face of the threats that it faces. I understand we need to stand firm against misinformation and disinformation and hoaxes and lies and intolerance for sure. But is what we're doing now as journalists working? I mean, think about it. In terms of our goals to elevate facts above fictions, particularly in the public's eyes, to uphold and advance our civic institutions, to make it hostile for hoaxes and misinformation to take root, are we getting the results we want? Well, then why are we still doing it? Simply put, I think it's just for lack of a better option. No one's come forth and said, don't do that, do this, right? We've got a lot of don't do that, like we don't spread hoaxes, don't spread misinformation, disinformation. Well, yes, of course. But then what? I began to search for and find a better way when I was hired to become the host of what became 1A on NPR. Jen White hosts the program now. It's a fabulous show. And as the founding host, I helped to build the show to a weekly listenership of 4 million people all across the country. It was a very successful program. It was at a time when Donald Trump and his supporters were at their very loudest in criticizing journalists and challenging us to prove that we were objective and impartial and not the quote unquote enemy of the people. And to do all that in the face of this endless stream of lies and misdirections and just flat out cruelty. So it really forced me to think long and hard about who I wanted to be as a national program host, as a national talk show host. And I love talk shows. Always wanted to do a talk show. I still want to do a talk show, especially with live audiences. That was always just like the end of the rainbow for me. And I had to find ways to cover tough subjects that also affected me personally. And during the Trump administration, and I say this regardless of your politics, if you're conservative, if you're Republican, don't give a damn. You are welcome here. But it was a very hard time to talk about just about anything. So there was this internal war. You got my inner human being that's trying to be as forthright as I can wherever it's germane. You know, I'm, I'm black. I'm gay. I've had enough experience in my life trying to make myself small and convenient for other people, which I only partially succeeded at, but that's another story. So I had that. And then I had my inner scientist, right? The kid that went through the MARC program 
who was able to treat stories like a chance to just acquire useful data, regardless of how I felt about it. You know, if I'm a cancer researcher, I don't go into the lab every day looking down at the Petri dish going, God damn it, glioblastoma multiforme, I just hate you so much. They would, they would laugh you, they would put you away. <laughs> they would give you a long coat with white sleeves and they would have to put you in a soft padded corner. You can't work that way. But if the data is trustworthy, then anyone should be able to use it and work toward a cure, right? Clinicians are not objective about diseases. They want cures. And that's why basic science works because it gives you useful data that you can use to solve problems. And then combined with all of that, I had my inner innovator, right? I'm the kind of person who doesn't wanna just play the game. I wanna raise the game. I agree with that quote from Schopenhauer, talent hits a target that no one else can hit Genius hits a target that no one else can see. And so I wanted to see what the next target was. I've always been interested, as have many people, I'm certainly not the only one, but I was always interested in trying to raise the game, not just play the game. I wanted to transcend what's been done and make people take notice. That's how 1A succeeded, right? And that's how this idea of clinical journalism was born. So let me explain what I mean and then flesh it out a little bit and see if I can get the idea percolating in your head. And again, there's plenty of room for discussion. I'm sure this isn't the perfect concept, but I wanna put it out there and see what people think about it. We agree something needs to evolve. Perhaps this is one step in that evolution. Clinical journalism's core tenet, if I had to boil it down to just a, a bumper sticker, right? The core tenet to me has to do with objectivity. And I mean objectivity the way that like, you know, Merriam-Webster has got a decent definition. I think that's a good place to start. Lack of favoritism toward one side or another, freedom from bias, right? That's, that's kind of what we're talking about when we mean objectivity, more or less. Here is my core tenet. I have come to believe that objectivity is an ability, not an identity. Let me say that again. Objectivity is an ability, not an identity. Think back to the clinical researcher. Like I said, they're not objective about diseases. They want cures. But they have to approach their work with a clear mind and allow themselves to let whatever personal feelings they have sit to the side while they're doing their work. If their mind is clouded, the data is useless. I think journalism can be the same way. I don't have to pretend not to feel anything or believe anything about the work that I do. But between the two of us, right, me, the press, and you, the public, we can have an agreement that in this space, I will operate in certain ways for our mutual benefit without pretending not to feel anything, right? I don't wanna seem inhuman. I don't wanna seem humanoid. I think in the same way that a clinician washes their hands, right? They clean up very thoroughly before they sit down at the lab because they don't want to contaminate their data. I have to kind of wash my head and my heart and my hands of biases and personal views, but not pretend I don't have them. I can for moments, for brief bursts, decide to set them aside without disavowing them. When I leave that lab, all those microbes are gonna come right back onto me, right? 
And some of those bugs that are on our body, right? The bacteria, the, the gut biome that we have, that's important for our health. They're supposed to be there. I don't want to wash my identity away so thoroughly that it denatures who I am as a person. So I'm not going to pretend to be nobody. Now, the extreme of this, right, has to do with dealing with issues of diversity. It would say things like, we don't want women covering the Me Too movement. A, a man could probably cover it better because he's got more emotional remove from it. Or we don't want Latinos covering immigration. We would rather have someone who is not of Latin heritage, not of Hispanic heritage, because they'd be able to cover it with more remove and more objectivity. Obviously, we don't say that, right? But that would be the apotheosis of this very hardcore notion of objectivity. We don't want that. So we want to create some way for people to be who they are, but still do the work that needs to be done. And I think a clinical approach to journalism makes more sense than a purely objective or impartial approach because that requires you to be someone you're not. And it's hard to report the truth in an artificial way. If you wanna report the truth, you have to be truthful too. You have to be truthful first. Objectivity as an identity is performance. It is an artifice. And I think the public can see through that now. And that's why it's not working the way it maybe used to. One example of this that came up for me at 1A, and there were so, so many. But one of the big ones was the debate over covering Confederate statues. This was set off in part by the former president saying that the, the ralliers in Charlottesville, Virginia, the neo-Nazis who walked through town in khaki pants with tiki torches, him saying that that rally had, in his words, quote, very fine people on both sides, unquote. Remember when he said that? Everyone knew it was wrong. But how do we tackle that statement without constantly letting Mr. Trump set the narrative? How can we be more proactive and not always reactive. That was kind of the issue for us at 1A, trying to figure out how to talk about this. And that's when I realized that I had the capacity to step back from the constant red meat that Donald Trump was throwing and dig for more substance behind what was happening. I am not objective about racism. I am black. I can't be objective about racism. But I can have a clinical conversation with someone who, for example, venerates Confederate statues. And let me be clear, the point would be not to agree, but to understand. It's the root of empathy. It's showing the kind of empathy to them that they refuse to show back. And I can do that by asking well-placed, open-ended questions to generate a narrative around this person, to paint a picture of who they are. For example, when was the first time you looked at a Confederate statue and felt reverence for it? Tell me about that. Tell me that story. Where did you get these views? Who taught you? How much have your views on Confederate statues affected your relationships with others? What's it been like for you dealing with the disapproval of others who don't share your views? You clearly know that the country is not inclined to keep these statues standing in places of honor. If they all went away, what would that mean to you? None of these questions requires me to pretend I'm not black or to pretend that I support that ideology for the sake of conversation or to pretend I feel nothing. 
Indeed, my honesty about where I stand gives my guest permission to be who they are as well. And that lowers the barrier to a more connected conversation. Does that make sense? Let me give you another example that also came up for me during 1A, the Me Too movement. I am absolutely not objective about sexism. I think that a man who treats a woman like she's just a girl is not really a man. He's a boy and he needs to be spanked as such. But the Me Too movement forced me to continue thinking this through because some of the men who have these views are in the audience now. So how do I speak both to them to get them to reevaluate those views and to the women who agree with the movement, right? Because it's public radio, right? It's public media. I can't control who shows up for the show. I want everybody. And I have to speak to everyone all the time, all at once. So how do I have that conversation with a variety of different kinds of people? This is admittedly a touchy aspect of clinical journalism. I recognize that. Because if you're not careful, understanding can smell like agreement. That's why there's a need for probing questions so your guest can flesh out their views and take on criticisms without making excuses. And this is another aspect of, I think, so-called objective journalism, kind of old school objectivity, at least as it's practiced now, that always rubbed me funny. There's this kind of some people technique <laughs> that some journalists will use where they'll say, for example, you know, some people would say that your policies hurt the poor. How would you respond to them? I, I think that's a dodge. It's a way of passing the buck for a question that you wanted to ask by presuming that, well, other people would ask this question too. I would suggest that you either quote a person, a real person, either a public figure, for example, House Speaker Pelosi called out your policies as being harmful to the poor. How do you respond to that? Or if you do audience engagement, just quote an audience member. You know, Sarah from Springfield says that she's concerned that your policies will hurt the poor. So either quote a real person or better yet, just ask the damn question. If it's a legitimate question, just ask it. How can you be sure that your policies won't hurt the poor? Don't soft peddle it by ascribing it to non-existent people. Again, that's another piece of that cloak of objectivity, that cloak of impartiality, not having the willingness to own a critical question for fear of being called biased. But if it's a legitimate question, just ask. Just ask. And the less we have to wear this cloak into the conversation, the less face we need to save, the less reputational damage there is to be done once that cloak starts to tear away under the weight of critical questions. The key to clinical journalism is to be probing, to be comprehensive, to be real. It is a way of eliciting transparency from others by being more transparent yourself. In this life, man, you get what you give, but we cannot demand transparency from guests anymore unless we demonstrate what that means by our actions and our decisions. It's easier to get if we're modeling the behavior. I think one person who's a good example of this is Jake Tapper from CNN, their chief Washington correspondent. I love me some Jake Tapper. Jake is cool with me. And not just because of his journalism, but Jake is very, very partial 
highly biased against anti-Semitism. He is Jewish and he wears his Jewishness very proudly as part of his identity. He's talked about how it has shaped the way he views the world and the way he does his job. There was an interview that he gave back in 2021, I believe. Let me just check my, yeah, there's the article. March, 2021, he spoke to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency and he talked about growing up going to a Hebrew Academy in Philadelphia. It's now called the Jack M. Barrick Hebrew Academy. At the time it was called the Akiba Hebrew Academy. And he said that it kind of shaped his view. He said in the article, and I'm quoting from him, quote, what I appreciated at the time was how much we were encouraged to consider other points of view, unquote. Now, is going to a Hebrew Academy the only way to develop that quality? Of course not but it developed that way for him. So what do you want me to do? Hey, Jake, could you keep doing that thing, but not be quite so Jewish about it? He would slap me in the face, and rightly so. You don't tell a man to, to rip away that much of his identity for the sake of doing his job. But that's what pure objectivity would demand. There is a better way forward, and it's allowing people not just to change who they are, but to be who they are and affirming that, avowing that. Every time that he did a story about COVID and remembered someone on the air and ended with, may his memory, may her memory be a blessing, that comes out of Jewish culture. I mean, he prayed on the air with Cardinal, with Archbishop Wilton Gregory over the deaths of people from COVID. That's part of his identity. Would we begrudge him that? Now, granted, that can be one of the arguments for old school objectivity right? That it enables us to consider other points of view by keeping our own viewpoints out of the question. So to be fair, you can arrive at the philosophy that Jake Tapper employs without doing it through a religious lens. True. Very true. I'll take it another step further. Sometimes that old school approach can be appropriate. It might be your best bet, especially when an issue is so new that you don't really know what to think, right? That old school approach can actually keep you away from knee-jerk reactions, from superficial suppositions. So I'm not knocking it. It's not that you throw it away completely. Again, it's an ability, not an identity, but it's an ability we still need. We still need to teach people how to be objective. The trick is to do it as a skill set. The risk is lapsing into false equivalence, that you use it all the time, and you kind of become the so-called voice from nowhere. 1A broke me of that notion too. And the way it happened was very unintentionally. I just traveled the country constantly. I was traveling, gosh, at the height of it, to like a different city every month, sometimes two, I think occasionally three, which got really, really crazy. Just doing like, broadcasts from other stations or station events or live audience events or donor functions and so on and so on. And I learned from all that travel that Americans are dealing with 95% of the same issues no matter where they live. And the array of perspectives is also very congruent from city to city. Like people are more alike than they think. And the beauty of having a national perspective that ran that deep the kind of national perspective that is as deep and as broad as public media has, 
painted an extremely detailed picture of the country for me. And it made me realize that trying to do the news down the middle is unworkable in some situations because it's far too narrow. In some matters, like say intolerance, a middle path can feel like a bias, but showing why the intolerance exists requires having empathy with the intolerant. Again, empathy, understanding, not agreement. You don't have to like that the cancer is there, but you do have to know how it works to stop it from being deadly. If you're talking about a heated issue, staying down the middle to quell the heat can be a form of bias. I mean, people are fired up for reasonable reasons. Their intensity in many issues, and I'm not talking about extremists and bigots and so on, to hell with them. Everyday people have intensity about big issues for reasonable reasons. That intensity, intensity is a sign of those reasons. If we're careful, we can get at the reasons without judging folks for feeling the way they feel. I mean, how would you feel if you were trying to say something that was hurting your heart or stirring your soul, but all the other person would say back was, calm down, calm down. I can't listen to you if you don't calm down. What if you can't calm down? What if we need to hear it anyway, regardless of whether you calm down? Clinical journalism gives us a better balance to strike here that is more accurate than simply lowering the heat and the volume on touchy issues. I think there's another aspect of science that allows me to think through all of this. Let me take a quick break because I've been talking for almost a half hour straight. Let me take a quick break and then I'll come back and I'll tell you a little bit more about another scientific principle that really made this make sense. This is something I learned, God, I must've learned it back in high school. And I'm, I'm glad I stayed awake in those classes. I'm glad I stayed awake in high school science class because it came in handy as a journalist. You just never know. I will continue explaining to you more about clinical journalism and the path forward, I think, for journalists looking for a new way to practice our profession when we come back. Stay close. The best part of the nightlight is you. Show your support for the show by becoming a paid subscriber. This can be more than just a podcast. It can be a community of people like you, people who want to be a part of building a better world for everyone, people who put connection above politics. Mainstream media is not doing it, and social media seems completely incapable, so we've got to build it ourselves. I have spent more than 20 years doing this work as an anchor and a newscaster and a national talk show host. Now I'm free to do it in new ways with no one to answer to but you. So come be my boss. The benefits for becoming a paid subscriber include access to all past posts on Substack, and you can leave comments there with priority over people who are not paid subscribers. You'll also get all podcasts and videos ad-free and early. To subscribe, you can go to nightlightshow.com, or if you want, just become a free subscriber on the site for limited access. Again, at nightlightshow.com. Thanks.
This is The Nightlight. I'm Joshua Johnson. I am sharing with you a big idea. Clinical journalism. My <laughs> my quest to reinvent the profession and save it from itself. No, no, no. It's, it's nothing that grandiose. I swear it's not that grandiose. But it's an idea I've been sitting on for a while, and I figured it's just time to put it out there, see what people think, and see if we might be able to make a difference with it. If this sounds interesting to you and you would like me to come speak to your organization or college or corporation or team or whatever about this in further detail, please let me know. Or if you detest this idea and you've got good cogent arguments why no one should be practicing this, I'd like to hear those too. Whatever you got, please fire away. If you're checking this out on social media or on YouTube or on Substack at nightlightshow.com, feel free to leave a comment below. Otherwise, you can just email me, joshua at nightlightshow.com. So we were talking about the heat in some of the big issues and trying to get people, calm down, calm down. You're just, please, too much noise, too much volume. Lower the volume, calm down, calm down. Sometimes that's necessary. But there's another principle scientifically, and again, this goes back to my understanding of clinical science as a non-professional clinician, of course, but that also informed my journalism. I've talked about this in public too. So if you've heard me speak about journalism in the past, you may have already heard me share this idea. But science teaches us that everything that creates light creates at least a little bit of heat, but not everything that creates heat creates light. I think journalism is exactly the same way. I think there's a lot of journalism out there that's very heated, very sensational, very much designed to fire us up, but it never illuminates. On the other hand, there's also a lot of journalism out there that's very bright, too bright, so bright that it's occupied with the philosophical and sociological and economical ramifications of the situation. It's so busy trying to impress us that it feels cold. It feels inhuman. And it doesn't feel like anything that a warm-blooded organism put out into the world. I think both of those are wrong. I think we have to be smart about the way we talk about issues. But always remember we're talking to warm-blooded human beings who feel things very deeply. People who have good reasons for feeling the way they feel about the issues. So in my view, the best journalism should be more light than heat, but not all light and no heat. Does that make sense? I think that clinical journalism as an approach can be the antidote to that sense of false equivalence, that voice from nowhere that increasingly rings hollow. That's the beauty of me having traveled the country and talked to all kinds of people from many different walks of life, and yes, from all across the political spectrum. I have spoken at the Aspen Ideas Festival with people who are all across the spectrum. I've spoken to some core NPR followers who are very, very progressive. I've been invited to CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, by the guy who puts it on because he respected our approach and all kinds of people in between. The best journalism should not be the voice from nowhere. I don't want to be the voice from nowhere. I want to be the voice from everywhere. I don't want to represent the middle. The middle is just another path and your path is your business. I want to be the map. I want to be a deeply sourced, data-rich, 
unimpeachable guide to the world that brings you clarity and meaning. The idea is to empower you with enough information that you can make up your own mind of which way to go, not presuming that my path, the middle, is the right one, but also to understand why the alternatives don't work for you. At the same time, that can also engender respect, not necessarily agreement, but respect for why someone else might choose a different path in ways that prevent you from judging their choices. That lets us serve everyone, no matter which path they may choose. You know, I think one of the things that folks don't particularly like about journalists, even if they like journalism, even if they respect news as a profession, we sometimes act like we are inherently more rational than everyday people. We are not. But we use our journalism to act like we are. The people are emotional, you know? They think and act and question and choose out of an array of imperatives. Some of them are purely logical, very few sometimes, and some of them are more emotional and intrinsic. We're people. But we, journalists, act as if we've trained ourselves to thoroughly strip away all that irrational, biased stuff in favor of this unmoved perspective on moving events. If that was true, if we really are that Vulcan about things, then why are we less attuned to consider our critics' critiques? What if they're onto something? Why do we take it so hard when people attack journalism rather than listening to the critiques thoroughly and weighing them rationally and responding cogently? We're human. And we owe it to the public now before it's too late to break the mystique of being somehow ennobled with this magical quality of impartiality like a stone tablet from Mount Sinai. And look, impartiality is not always a pleasant quality in nature. Predators are impartial about their prey, right? Viruses are impartial about their hosts. Hurricanes are impartial about their paths. We are highly partial highly motivated, highly biased toward the things that matter to us and against the things that threaten our interests. And one of our interests is being viewed as right, being vindicated. That gives us a sense of safety, of security, of utility, of empowerment in the face of complex situations. And especially those that might force us to change our own ways or admit that we were wrong. Doubling down on some veneer of inherent objectivity makes us look humanoid, like something that resembles real people but doesn't quite feel human. How can that possibly increase anyone's trust in us? Owning our humanity is step one to regaining trust. Owning our humanity gives us permission to be fully human and, best of all, it gives those around us permission to do the same, to let us in. I'm not saying you gotta cry on camera or anything like that, but if something moves you to that point, why would you apologize for those tears? Who does that serve? Journalism is a service. And if we insist that people just take what we're giving the way we choose to give it, and if we're inflexible to evolving our work, that's no longer a service, it's a product. Buy it or don't, use it or don't. It comes off the assembly line like that. Coke isn't changing its formula for you. It's Coke. What could you possibly know about it, you dumb consumer you? 
I mean, if you're here to serve, then give the best possible service. Show your work. You might be surprised how much meaning and satisfaction you get from just exceeding people's expectations, blowing past them. When was the last time you knew you knocked it out of the park for your audience? When was the last time they told you they loved what you gave them? Not that they appreciated it, but that they loved it. Love is a feeling. We'll talk about feelings in a minute. One way that I think is great that I'm seeing more news organizations do is they will include a how we did it sidebar, particularly with big investigative reports or enterprise reports where they explain the process behind the journalism. That is an extremely good idea. More of that, please. Wherever possible, we should explain how we arrived at the insights in the piece. Just as a well-researched clinical researcher would put that in their scientific report. Now, if you cannot explain a detail, say a source was anonymous, explain why you kept them anonymous, like to protect them from retribution. I think that's great. It's like a clinical researcher working hard to produce results that are reliable. And on top of that, results that others can understand and replicate. I mean, that's the gold standard. And we have a similar opportunity, particularly the replication part. I mean, a good report makes an instant expert of your audience. Is your piece reported clearly enough that someone could retell it to someone else? Would they win that game of telephone if the subject was your story? Is it compelling enough that they're afraid not to finish it? They're afraid to tune out halfway through. They're afraid to stop reading halfway in. By the end of a well-produced report, I should know it as well as you know it. The goal is to replicate your knowledge in your audience so that they can make decisions with it. You were the expert on your story. If you do it right, we can all be experts. A few more quick thoughts about this, and I'll expand on this in future episodes and articles. Though, for those of you who normally listen to The Nightlight, this is not what the show is going to become about. This is just a detour. Just indulge me for a minute. I promise I'm almost done. I'm almost done. This is just a detour for a little while, and then we'll get back to doing all kinds of other stuff. And if you are new to the show, please check out previous episodes. We've talked about everything from the future of democracy to the Barbie movie to that fight on the riverboat in, in Alabama. I mean, we, we talk about all kinds of cool stuff. So please check out other things. We did an episode about how to talk about climate change without bumming people out. Uh, it, it's all kinds of interesting stuff that I wanna talk about on the show. So this is just a bit of an unusual detour. But a few other things about this. I think we also, like good researchers, we need to admit the limits of our knowledge, right? Journalism can feel very omniscient at times, which kind of adds to the lofty humanoid, you know, Lieutenant Commander Data quality of the work that we do sometimes. Now look, I know, and some of my former colleagues are gonna be like, yeah, but well, we remember when you did this on air, Josh, when you do it all the time. I know sometimes I'm on the air and I, hey, there's plenty of times when I've been doing live coverage and I'll say, let me orient you to where we are right now. Looking north, that's toward downtown and City Hall is this way. And then downtown, there's a, you know, there's a historic Cuban neighborhood. And I will, I will do that as a way of creating a sense of place. I'm sitting with Google Maps, people. <laughs> it's either that or it's a city I've been to. So I'm not trying to seem like I know everything about everybody. But when you have knowledge, that's great. Use it. Use it and use that to give people a clearer understanding of a story. Of course. But when you don't know something, you don't have to hide that all the time, right? Be transparent about what you don't know. Be proactive about it. 
And that allows you to be accurate and precise and tempered in the language that you use. There are plenty of times in an immediate breaking story, especially if it's a story that we have attributed to another news organization and we're trying to confirm it ourselves, very often you'll hear me on the air say something like, we're working to confirm independent reports that so-and-so. Or I did this all the time when I anchored on MSNBC or when I was on NBC News Now, the phone will be blowing up with alerts from all these different news organizations that were trying to attribute something. And I would say on the air something like, I'm sure you've seen alerts on your phone stating that so-and-so-and-so. We've seen them too, but we're trying to confirm them more fully before we put our name on them. As soon as we do, you'll hear it from us. So you can acknowledge your limits and acknowledge that you're living in a world where people have other options for their information besides you. The value you add is your double checking. You're dotting I's, crossing T's, confirming information. Let them know there's a value that you are about to deliver them that is worth sticking around for. Makes you more trustworthy, makes you more human, grounds you as living in the same dimension as other people. Yeah, I got that same alert on my phone too. My Twitter feed or X, is that what we're calling it? We call, we call it Twitter or X. Anybody know? I'm alone in the room. Who am I yelling to? But wherever you get it, like it's okay to say that you don't know or that you don't know yet. That's honest. That's honest. And I think the more human we can be, the more eye to eye we can be with our audiences, the more trustworthy we'll be. One thing that breaks trust all the time and that I think is very much opposed to a clinical view of journalism is hyperbole. Hyperbole is almost never your best option. I saw a lower third on CNN the other day, not to pick on CNN, but this is where I saw it. I don't think they're the only ones who do this. But there was an interview with Linda Thomas-Greenfield. She is the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. And it was about the war in Ukraine. And the top banner, they have that little red headline banner underneath the, the larger text. The top kind of tab banner read, World on Edge. Time out. <laughs> Hold up. Excuse me. The whole world is not on edge about Ukraine. Not right now. COVID, we were all on edge. World War II, yes, for sure. But don't say the sky is falling. Show me the debris. Inelegant language makes you look even further removed from everyday people than we already are. If everything is a crisis, nothing is. How can we trust you to tell us when we really should be on edge? Now, I know that that may kind of make you bristle a little bit. Like, ah, oh, come on, they can write that however they want. Don't tell them how to write their lower thirds. You know what? That's fair. That's fair. I don't mind that. Because ultimately, and I'll cop to this, like, like I said at the beginning, this is not gospel. This is not dogma. Clinical journalism is stylistic. News, as I said before, is an art form. It's an allied series of multiple art forms coming together, actually. So there's no one way to do it. It's constantly evolving, which is a good thing. I'm just trying to be part of that evolution. But we need to lean into the evolution. Don't assume that getting just the facts is enough. And again, in case I haven't made it clear, I do not hate old school objectivity. Just because I don't ascribe to it anymore, just because I don't consider myself that, does not mean that traditional journalism is evil or anything like that. I mean, honestly, I look at those old school journalists, including the ones who are working today, 
with a tremendous amount of gratitude. Huge. Because those journalists did and are doing the best they can with the skill set and the mindset they have. They are doing the work. Expecting them, or really anyone, to have the one true way of journalism engraved on stone tablets or something, why would we put that on them? Each of us gets to practice this art form as we see fit, and we get to learn from one another. But for those who choose to keep those traditional ways, I would hesitate to judge them. Judgment is the opposite of empathy, and empathy, as I've said, is a core skill of clinical journalism. No one has all the answers. Not even a clinical journalist like me. So hey, if this ain't for you, you're still my friend, to each their own. Having said that, <laughs> this is not gonna contradict what I said, I promise, I promise. If we're gonna make a shift like this to clinical journalism or whatever else, I think now is the perfect moment to do it. I mean, lots of people, for example, have come after cable news for polarizing, at times poisoning, the civil discourse, Fox News looking directly at you. And nowadays, there are plenty more places to get your news, including lots of reputable independent outlets, many of which are nonprofits. That's cool. Also, don't know if you've been following the trade publications, cable TV ain't what it used to be. Disney rebelled against Charter, which is a major owner of cable systems across the country. If you have Spectrum Cable, Charter owns Spectrum. And the networks of Disney got pulled off of Charter's systems for a while over a dispute about the future of ESPN. Disney owns ESPN. I've talked about that on the Nightlight as well. But on top of that, CNN just started putting its live clean feed of the network, the U.S. network, on its streaming service, Max, in what they call an open beta. CNN and ESPN are two of the absolute most valuable channels on cable. If you are paying for cable, those are among the channels that will allow the owners of those channels to negotiate higher retransmission fees from cable operators. So when your cable bill goes up, that means that those companies are demanding more money to carry the channel. ESPN and CNN are among the channels that make cable TV worth it at all for the overwhelming majority of its subscribers. MTV still has a lot of cachet and its related networks, especially Nickelodeon. But these are signs to me that the rebellion is in full swing. Cable news as a term of art is about to become meaningless. I mean, even my old stomping ground at MSNBC, which is a terrific network, even they're programming a parallel streaming channel on Peacock with mixed to limited success, or so it would seem. I'm not sure how that's going. But now all of the major broadcast news operations have their own streaming outposts online. NBC has two of them. They've got the MSNBC channel on Peacock, and they've got NBC News Now, which is my other old stomping ground. NBC News Now works perfectly. There are programs from NBC News Now that are running on NBC broadcast stations. NBC News Daily, if you've ever seen that in the afternoons, that's from NBC News Now. That's a streaming program that's running on broadcast television. So we have redefined broadcast news technically. Now it's time to rethink it editorially. This gives us a chance to do what we rarely get to do as full-time working reporters. 
we rarely get to think about how we do what we do rather than just doing it on autopilot because the deadlines are breaking our backs. And I understand why some people are saying, we're just gonna double down on the facts and, and do what we've always done because that's the best thing for journalism and we don't care that people are critiquing us, we're gonna, we're gonna keep staying the course and I totally understand that. It's just that retrenching to the just the facts journalism, I don't see how that's better than searching for new methods of doing our work or at least probing whether our current methods still serve us well. I mean, saying that people consume news just for the journalism is like saying we go to a steakhouse just for the meat. No, hell, we don't. We go for a steak. Journalism is the raw material. It's vital. It has to be great. But it's not the product. I see three key differences between meat and steak. Sizzle, seasoning, and service. Sizzle. It's got to attract you from afar. It's got to be prepared in an appealing, enticing way that entices you before you consume it. Seasoning, it has to add something to the raw material that brings it to life in a new way. And service, it's got to be presented in a way that makes us trust its quality, that makes us feel good about spending our money or, even more valuable, our time there. Still not convinced? Okay. Why do news programs have titles? Why not call every news program on CBS, CBS News? Why not call every show on CNN, CNN? Why does anything on NPR need a name at all? It's because people don't watch the news. People watch the people who deliver the news. It's a human interaction. And the uniqueness of each program is part of the sizzle, the seasoning, and the service that brings the raw material of journalism to life. I assure you, no one at CBS would ever, <laughs> ever consider abandoning the name 60 Minutes. It's a human interaction. We have to lean into that essential humanity if we want to succeed. We have to lean into the craft of journalism, not just the technology that allows us to stream or to go on social media or make TikTok videos or podcasts or whatever else. But if you're streaming and podcasting and, and ticking your talk, are people just going to find the same stuff they could get if they turn on their television for free? They are? Well, then what's the point? Look, some of you listening to this have been doing journalism for decades. So have I. 20 years and counting. If you've been doing this for decades, like I have, I guarantee you it's time to shake it up a bit. And look, it is easy for me as I'm kind of in this unique professional space that I'm in, you know, not working for a company and out on my own and trying to figure out which way is up. And just, it's emotional, right? It's hard. I mean, it's, it's, Plenty of days are frustrating. Lots of days are are very, I've cried more tears in the last few months since NBC let me go than I care to recall. And it can feel like you're starting from zero. Please, 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 don't put that on yourself. You're not starting from zero. Do not abandon everything you've learned. I'm not suggesting you do that. All I'm suggesting is that you examine it, question it anew, if you hate the new stuff, you can always go back to before, but try it for 90 days. 
See what works for you, see what doesn't. But no, you do not have to throw away everything you thought you knew. That is not my argument. My final thought for now, the ultimate goal here, the whole reason that I've put all this out there is to try to preserve and or restore confidence in the mainstream press as a, as a pillar of our democracy. This is a time of huge upheaval. And I'll be honest, some of our best known, largest news organizations might not survive the night. You know, maybe you are, if you're over at ABC News, you already know how cold the place feels right now. Apparently, it's a rather humbled place because of reports that Disney's CEO, Bob Iger, is open to selling the ABC network. There are some reports that suggest that Nexstar is one potential suitor. Nexstar owns like 200 television stations across the country. That new cable network, News Nation, Nexstar started News Nation. Byron Allen has reportedly made a bid to buy ABC lock, stock, and barrel for about $10 billion. Now, I don't think either of these would necessarily kill the ABC network or kill ABC News if they happened. Who knows, right? And I also don't know if regulators would go for it. I think that would be a tough sell, but who knows? But the idea that one of the big three would be less than a crown jewel is a huge, huge deal. So the big question is, if this is the way the world is going, if we have no control over what Wall Street chooses to do to us on Main Street, how do we demonstrate and grow our value at a time like this? We have to advance the way we do business, not by paving over our legacy, right? But by building on it. I think we've got opportunity to really change the game and make the industry look at journalism in a whole different way as something that is a rich ferment of ideas and opportunity. But first, we got to be clear on what business we're actually in. And this is the last thing I'll leave you with, and then I promise I'll, I'll hush. For now. <laughs> For now, I'll hush. I know too many journalists who think, like I said, that we're just in the business of information, right? We're just here to bring you the meat. What you choose to do with it, the steak you want to make, that's your business. And I used to think that too. But during my time at 1A, I realized that's wrong. We're not in the information business. Not anymore. Google is in the information business. We are in the emotion business. I know that sounds nuts, right? You're ready to turn off the podcast. I get it. I got it. I spent all this time talking about being clinical, and now the cherry on the top is touchy-feely. We're in the emotions business. What? Hear me out. I'm not telling you to sing Kumbaya around a campfire. I mean, if you want to. But no, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. If you are a journalist then you already have one emotion in particular very much in your lifeblood. You live and die by it. Can you guess what it is? All news organizations need, at the end of the day, to cultivate the same emotion. Trust. If you do not trust us, then you will not accept anything we have to say. And trust is a feeling. Journalism uses facts to build a feeling. Think about that. Reliable facts yield a durable feeling, and the feeling is trust. Somewhere along the line, things have happened or not happened or been done too little or too much 
that eroded that trust to the point where today folks who do not trust us cannot quite articulate why. That's a problem, right? If you don't have a sound, valid argument about the press, then it's impossible to do anything useful about what's wrong. That's why that whole enemy of the people thing was so damn frustrating. It was emotionally cathartic for the people who said it and absolutely freaking useless to those of us who were like, well, what the hell do you want us to do about it? But that's how emotions work. Think about it. Can you pinpoint the moment you came to trust someone? Maybe you can. Maybe there was some pivotal moment. For journalism, it might have been the Kennedy assassination or the first Gulf War or the Iran hostage crisis or Watergate or Hurricane Katrina when you came to rely on us as a member of the public. But trust is usually like love. You know, you cannot always pinpoint the moment you fell in love. And you never know, frustratingly enough for Wall Street, you never know how long it'll take to happen. It just happens. You wake up one day and look around and realize you're in a relationship. And the public's relationship with its news outlets of choice probably happens in much the same way. They don't remember precisely when they got into the habit of reading or watching or listening to whatever it is they like right now. They just know they like it. If we want to reconnect the press and the public in a sustainable way, we have to stop fighting back with information. We still need information, and we need it to be factual and reliable. Don't misunderstand me. Information remains part of our stock in trade. But again, at the end of the day, information is just like the, the fuel in a car. And even with 93 octane in the tank, no one wants to drive a clunker. We have to speak to the hearts of our audiences as well as their minds. We have to figure out what they feel about us and then tend to that emotional bond or maybe mend the bond if it's broken. We are such aggressive hunters of information, but some of us are killing our audiences with friendly fire. Yes, we have to pursue the truth, but we need to perform that pursuit with compassion, with humility, with empathy, with care. We have to be humble in the face of this criticism. Try to see the true emotion behind the anger and the derision, which I have learned often when people are putting out anger or frustration, that is often a shield to hide some kind of pain, fear, or shame. Try that in your next interview when you find someone that just, I can't believe it, son of a, and let me tell you something else. When they get real mad, you have probably touched on something that hurts, that they're afraid of, or that they're ashamed of. See if you can dig underneath it to get to that. And I guarantee it'll flip the interview in a whole new direction. But we have to get to that emotion and tend to what's at the root of the broken bond. I think a more clinical approach can help with that. And then, once the public knows that we legitimately care about them in this relationship, especially because we're trying to actively improve our side of the relationship by advancing the art of what we do, then we can start to mend the relationship day by day, story by story, hour by hour, and yes, correction by correction. And then one day, at a time no one can predict, we'll look around and realize things are getting better. Maybe we'll even fall back in love and we won't even realize it. I've heard it said before, and it is true, true, true. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People don't care how much you know 
until they know how much you care. We work with information to build an emotion, and the emotion is trust. Trust is a feeling. It's not an award. It's not the cost of citizenship. And it is not something we are owed. If we want this pillar of democracy to survive, and if you've listened all the way through this podcast, and I know you do, we got to work with our heads, but we got to lead with our hearts. We compete head to head, but we have to connect heart to heart. That's clinical journalism. That's my idea for it anyway. That's what I think. What do you think? I hope you found this enjoyable, compelling, provocative. Reach out and let me know what you thought, whether you like it or don't like it or don't know or just don't care. Joshua at nightlightshow.com. Again, I'm happy to come speak to your organization about clinical journalism or to help you implement this idea among your team. And that's whether you're in a legacy news organization or a journalism startup, a J school, corporate communications, an internal newsroom, a global media powerhouse, or maybe you're like me talking to yourself in your spare bedroom, flying solo, just doing it all by yourself. I can help get a conversation going among your team, help you workshop how to implement clinical journalism where you are. And again, I will be writing and posting more about this. So follow the show for now. I'll probably build a separate website and a different web presence for it. So all this stuff is easier to find in one place. But for now, just follow the show, nightlightshow.com. And I'll post this there. It's usually some of it's behind a subscription paywall. I'll leave this article out of the paywall so you can come back to it whenever you want. But let's get a conversation going. Email me. I would love to hear from you. All right. That's it. Thank you so much for making time for me. I know this was a lot to absorb. I cannot wait to hear your thoughts about it. For those of you who are regular subscribers, thank you so much for being a paid subscriber, if indeed you are a paid subscriber. If you are new to the show, consider becoming a paid subscriber online at nightlightshow.com. I will be back with regular episodes of The Nightlight very soon, but until we meet again, I'm Joshua Johnson. Thanks again for making time. And as always, Keep on shining because someone, somewhere, needs your light right now.